despite the familiarity of it, I always feel that Palm Sunday is one of the most complex and nuanced Sundays of the entire year. I mean, on the one hand, it's straightforward. But on the one hand, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's uh, celebratory. Uh, it's right that it's celebratory. It's right that we have our children leading us in worship and uh, waving palm branches. As followers of Jesus, what we believe is that this is the beginning of the single most important week of the year. The events of the coming days are the turning point in all of human history. That it's not just a political event or a spiritual event, but actually the fabric of creation changes because of the coming days. And so when we see Jesus entering in to do what only Jesus can do in Jerusalem, it is right for us to sing praises, to shout Hosanna, to wave palm branches, to worship him. On the one hand, it's straightforward and it's celebratory. But there's also a shadow side to all of this, isn't there? There's kind of an undercurrent that's taking place in these events. Because the fact remains that while we celebrate and while we uh, sing, as the crowd did, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when God doesn't do what the crowd wants God to do, many in their midst change their cries from Hosanna to crucify him. When God doesn't answer the prayers they have, when God doesn't follow their agenda, when God doesn't do what they do, they call for murder, which we don't teach our children when they're processing through here. And that's a good thing. Our children's ministry would never do that. There's a shadow side to it. And this morning, I want us to deal in the fullness of all that Palm Sunday is. And if we do so, not just to kind of celebrate and have these rituals that are important and good, but to actually mine out the good news that lies in the Palm Sunday story that we can hold on to and celebrate, okay? The version of Palm Sunday we're looking at this year comes from Matthew chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 11. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I pray that no matter who we are, how we walk in here today, how we worship today, what doubts, what thoughts, what opinions, what beliefs we have, that each and every one of us would hear and experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things for us to understand about Palm Sunday, and it's important that we're all on the same page about this, is that there's a lot of symbols that are taking place that we need to be well-versed in to really uh, get what's taking place here, okay? Of the four gospel writers, Matthew is probably the one who's most interested in these symbols. In these 11 verses that we just read, he quotes the Old Testament twice. Because he wants us to see that these are not just uh, random events, but that these are fulfilling parts of the Old Testament, fulfilling prophecies, embodying the customs and traditions of the Old Testament. The first of these quotes uh, in, in the passage, if you, if you look at it, is in verse 5. And in verse 5, what we see is that there's a prophecy that Jesus is embodying. When Jesus sends the disciples ahead to get a colt and a donkey to ride in over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. It's not because his feet are tired. It's not because it's a hot day and he just wants to rest. He is embodying the words of this prophecy in verse 5 that come from the ninth chapter of the Old Testament book, Zechariah. And what Zechariah promises about the king, the savior, the Messiah, is that when he comes into Jerusalem, he will come in with humility riding a colt and a donkey. And so when Jesus does this, he is saying in a very bold way to all the crowds, I am telling you who I am. I am not just a really good teacher. I'm not just a really nice guy. I'm not just a healer. I'm not just a really wise person. I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. I am the savior. I am the one that has been prophesied about. It is a bold thing that Jesus is doing. And the crowd would have all known Zechariah 9. They knew what was taking place. And they respond accordingly. And it's important we get these symbols. It says that they lay their cloaks on the ground. It says they cut down branches and specifically palm branches to lay on the ground and so that Jesus rides over them. This is the sign of what they do for, in the Old Testament for a returning king. Specifically a king who's won a military vic uh, victory and is returning in triumph. They are proclaiming the might of God. They are proclaiming the majesty of God. And the palm branches that we wave were actually signs of national pride, national unity for the nation of Israel. And so what we see in this is that it's very like, patriotic what they're doing, waving these palm branches. And finally, Matthew shows who they are shouting for. He says uh, that they are shouting, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the second in verse 9, the second of the Old Testament quotes. Well, these aren't just random words. These are the people shouting uh, a quote from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was a very specific psalm. It was a psalm that was sung, again, for a triumphant military king returning after victory. So what we need to understand in these symbols, and Matthew very much wants you and I to be certain we get this, is that Jesus is in a very bold way saying and declaring who he is, and the people are responding saying, we believe you. We believe that you are more than just a teacher. We believe that you're more than just a really good, wise person. We believe that you're more than just a healer. We believe you are the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the King, sent by God. And the last thing we have to know is that all of these events are taking place during the annual festival of the Passover. And the Passover is the holiest festival in the Old Testament. 
Passover is when uh, the people would have celebrated God hearing their cries after 500 years of slavery in Egypt and delivering them out of slavery from the Pharaoh. So this is an enormously important day. And what it would have meant, among other things, is that the population of Jerusalem would have swollen at the time with religious pilgrims coming in to celebrate the Passover. But all of these symbols have added meaning because what is really clear in the response of the people is that they believe that the Messiah and the Savior have come on the Passover to deliver the people from bondage again. In the Old Testament, it was from Pharaoh. But the one that is ruling over the people now is the Caesar, is Rome. And just so we're clear, when the people were praying and asking for delivery from Rome, this was not just some subtle little prayer that a few of them had. When Rome conquered you, they were absolutely brutal in how they ruled. All the things we talk about today of kind of what people's voices are and how they're heard and how they're felt and how people experience things, that didn't exist then. There was nothing like that. When Rome came and conquered you, they kind of let you keep going about your business except for if you got in their way, if you Stop them collecting taxes if you took their, if you didn't want them taking money, which you had no voice in what the tax rate is. They just told you what it was. If you got in the way of their expansion and the empire, they just killed you. When Jesus and the criminals are crucified uh, on Good Friday, this was not an uncommon event. And the way that the Romans did this is they would nail you to a cross and leave you in a very public place where often you took days to die. It was a horrible thing to watch, not only to experience, but for the people around to watch, to raise their children in. Because Rome wanted everybody to feel terror, to know this is what will happen to you if you get in the way. So when the people are saying that they are living in the system, we need to understand this is like the purest thing they could have expected or wanted. That God would come and remove them from the, from the uh, dominance of Rome, just as God had overpowered the Pharaoh. All of these symbols are incredibly important. And what I want us to feel in this, what I want us to know in this, in these symbols, is that the likelihood if you and I had lived in Jerusalem a couple of thousand years ago is we would have been right there in that crowd, celebrating the same thing and celebrating the promise that we believed again, that our deliverance was now at hand. This was like the, the purest prayer you could want at that time. Have you ever had a prayer that felt like the obvious, clear, purest right thing that you prayed to God only to have God not answer it in the way you wanted? Like the thing that you're sitting there going, if you are a good, loving, just God, how is this possible? And God doesn't answer it in the way, in the time, in the manner that you want. How would you respond in that? And maybe a better way of asking it is, how do you respond in those moments? The crowd turns when the Messiah that they want and the Messiah that they get don't line up. Crucify him. Crucify him. 
I want to look at this, uh, how to understand this, and again, to mine out the real good news at the heart of this. Uh, through the lens of the book we've been reading over uh, Lent, Low Anthropology, this book by Dave Zoll. Uh, I hope that you've read it. Uh, if not, uh, what Dave does is gives us these sort of two views of human nature, of how we see ourselves, of how we understand ourselves, that we see the world. The one we're going to immediately gravitate to and like is what he calls high anthropology. It's the most optimistic view. You can do anything. Anything's possible. Our society just keeps moving in amazing directions. Nothing, we kind of exist without limits in what we can become. Which Dave points out in the book why we like that so much, but what are the pitfalls we quickly start seeing? We've covered this. What Dave invites us to consider is what living with what he calls a low anthropology is, which is not a negative view of life, but it's just saying, eh, it's a little more complex than that. You can do anything. I don't know. Feels like there's some things I'm not able to do. Feels like there's some things as a world that we're advancing in. Also seems like there's some things we're regressing in. I just think it's a little more complicated than like every year it's getting better than the year before, right? Society, just everything is getting better. Dave's going, I think it's a little more complex than that. That's, that's not a negative view, it's, but it's what he calls low anthropology. And I wonder if this lens of high anthropology and low anthropology might help us to understand Palm Sunday even better. Because what I want to submit to you today is that the crowd's singing and reaction to Jesus. Jesus is saying he's the Messiah, and the crowd's saying, yes, you are. But not only does the crowd recognize him as the Messiah, but the crowd in what they're doing and saying is also declaring what the Messiah is going to do. And I'm not certain that there is a higher form of anthropology than us saying, not only do I believe in God, I have the wisdom to know what God should do. Not only do I recognize that this is Jesus, I can tell you before Jesus goes into Jerusalem how this is going to work. Because obviously a good and loving God would do this. This is the embodiment of original sin that's still alive, and it's alive in us. I mean, think back in the Old Testament to, to Genesis chapter 3. Where God says, don't eat of this tree, uh, the fruit of this tree, because you'll die. And then the servant comes along and says, Adam and Eve, no, 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 you're not going to die. You'll be like God. And what does that serpent say? And think about this. The serpent says, you're going to be like God, knowing the difference in good and evil. You're going to be able to think like God. You're going to know what's right and wrong. You're going to know what's best and what's not. You are going to be able to have a wisdom that is divine. Is there anything that we can say more optimistic about human nature than we have reached the point of divine knowledge and wisdom? But that's what the people do. Not only do they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they can tell you what the Messiah is going to do. That might be the epitome, the summit of what high anthropology is. In the last chapter's book, uh, Dave gives us a picture of what he would say a low anthropology religion is, a low anthropology sense of faith. And what he talks about is the fact that it's a faith that is more curious about what God does. It's watching and responding to what God does versus dictating to God, we know what you should do. It might be understood best through the Old Testament book of Job. Where in the book of Job, uh, Job is crying out to God in his suffering, which is very understanding. And God then responds to Job and says, 
who are you, who are you to question me? Like, were you there when the planets were put in motion in the sky? Were you there when the stars were put in the heavens? Like, and then God has this quote. He says, he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I am the creator. You are the creation. Don't tell me how it's supposed to work. Dave says that this is the kind of approach that we are supposed to take. It's not a negative thing that God's doing, but it right-sizes things. Dave says if you have a low anthropology, then you're going to have a really high Christology. Because God and God's grace are just going to be overwhelming to you of how wondrous they are. But he says that you should know that you're going to be surprised by God at times. God's ways aren't your ways. God's thoughts aren't your thoughts. What God's going to do may not be what you would do in a situation. Are there any Ted Lasso fans here? This should sound familiar with uh, the dart scene in season one, where he talks about uh, being curious, not judgmental. What would it mean if the crowd here was curious rather than judgmental? What would it mean if the crowd followed along to be surprised by what Jesus is doing rather than rejecting what Jesus should do? Because what they would learn is this. It's not that Jesus doesn't care. It's not that he's not doing anything. It's not that he's not active. But actually what he is doing in the words of scripture is something bigger than anything the crowd could ask or imagine. He's not there in a cage match against Caesar to show who's stronger. This isn't the octagon. He is there to do something far more significant. To reconcile the creation and the creator, to break down all barriers between us and God for all time, to show us the power of love, which is stronger than any other power in this world, to liberate us with a sense of living with joy and in community and in honesty and in grace and with salvation. He is there to accomplish far more than overthrowing a single government. Because if that happened, all that would happen is in a few years, the new people that you put in power, they become corrupt because that's what human beings do. And then they're crying out to God again. Well, I don't know why you picked them. You should put them in power now. And then it just becomes this cycle that we're all very familiar with, aren't we? Oh, if only they were elected, it would all be better. Like you wonder at what point we go, oh, maybe it's not like that simple. Maybe there's more going on than that. A low anthropology would have a curiosity that God is up to something. Political dictators have been overthrown in every country in the world through history. We don't know most of them because it doesn't impact us. But all around the world this week, people of every, in every corner of the globe are going to be giving thanks that Jesus didn't overthrow Caesar, but that he went to the cross and through it changed the fabric of creation forever. What if the people had been curious enough to follow and learn versus that's not what a loving God would do? How do you respond in that moment? How do I? You see, at the heart of this, there is a, um, there's a promise that's really important for us to hear. In the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our lives, there is a promise of gospel, of good news in this that I want to end with. And I think it was summed up to me by uh, this week by um, my wife, actually. My wife um, has uh, certain gifts. 
some might call them superpowers, uh, certain superpowers that, and one of her superpowers is, Beth has an amazing ability to take really complex ideas and in six words frame them so that they make sense. Where you're like, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's really, it makes her a really good teacher. It, it's, it's, it's really a gift. It, I will tell you, it can be somewhat annoying to be married to someone with that superpower. <laughs> because we don't always agree on everything, and there are moments where I'm really confident I'm right, and you'll be stunned by this, but my way of going into those conversations is to take about 20 minutes to circle what I feel, and what I think, and what the truth might be, and how to look at this, and different ways to consider it, and it takes quite a while, and she listens, and then in like eight words, she both dismantles my argument and reframes it in a way that you're going, okay, that probably makes more sense. <laughs> and when I'm smart and wise, I stop at that moment. And sometimes, though, I'm frustrated enough to go back for round two. And then to, like, once again take 20 minutes to get it, but this is what I mean, and I don't know if I was clear. And she goes, no, you were clear. And I'm like, no, but I don't think that you understand and how we think about this. And, and then at the end, she'll take forward to dominate round two. And then normally by the end of round two, I've given up. <laughs> so there is an annoyance to this superpower, but lots of times she chooses to use it for good. This week was one of those times. It's been a hard week. It's been a hard week. I want to rate any of the events of what take place in Nashville as harder or worse or more tragic than any others that have happened far too frequently. But I did notice it was a covenant Presbyterian Church. I did notice that one of the children that was lost was the daughter of the pastor of that church. Not that that life is any more or less valuable. I wondered this week, what's it like for that church right now to be gathering and worship on Palm Sunday? How do you do that? Where's God in that? The events of our political system this week and the circus on all sides that is just so exhausting. And then we were also just dealing with the stuff of life, our life, your life. Our lives aren't perfect, your lives aren't perfect. It just was a heavy, hard week. And in my wondrous way, I was trying to remind us as a couple, you know, where's God in this and how do we think about this and God's with us and God's with us and we remember that and we remember that in this world and we remember that in our nation. God's with us. And Beth said, that's true. But God being with us is the miracle we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel. The promise of Palm Sunday, of Holy Week, is that God's not just with us, but he's for us. He's not just with us, but he's for us. Even when it's hard to detect where he is, he's for us. And that's right, isn't it? God wasn't just with 
the crowd. But God was for the crowd, both when they were shouting Hosanna and when they shouted crucify him and yet he offered his forgiveness. He was for the people that were there, not just with them. He was for his disciples, both when they followed his teachings to go find a colt and a donkey and it, when they ran at the first sign of danger and abandoned him and left him. But he goes and finds him afterwards to say, I am still for you. He is for the brokenness of this world that demanded that he be put to death. And yet as he was, he offered grace and forgiveness and salvation. He is for this world and for the healing of the brokenness in creation. He is for us as a people, not just with us. He is for the people of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And all those who have been impacted by that. And in the difficulty of your lives, which is real and hard and painful, that at moments you wonder, where is a good God in the midst of this? I am praying this prayer. And I don't see you responding the way I think you should. He is for you in those places as well. Sometimes it's hard to see it. But he was at work in Jerusalem. What would it mean if the crowd was curious and followed and surprised rather than judgmental? Friends, God is at work in your life this week. He is with you. He is for you. And that is good news. In the midst of events, in the midst of what you feel, in the midst of headlines, cling to that good news. Because of the ways of the Lord cannot be stopped. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us and remind us of your love, that you are with us that you it for us. And this week is the promise and the reminder of that truth, that good gospel. We pray this to be real to us this day. Amen.